Okay, so America after the war. Okay, America after the war basically benefits from this fact that they become quite a big producer during the war, with then lease, um, and the American economy doesn't actually suffer in the same way as European economies because essentially it's able to keep going. Okay, um, you know, right now there is it is a really prime sort of example of how you know if you have to shut down industry in your country because of some big disaster you know war disease whatever okay um it has a massive impact on your economy and the more you can keep your economy going the better you're going to come out the other side i mean i think you know if you look at kind of our government right now i guess that's what they're trying to figure out okay but we're talking about america in 1945 and beyond basically the economy in this period grows rapidly now it's not quite the kind of um shocking boom of the 1920s and there are steps taken to make sure it's a bit more stable but essentially the economy in america grows okay um much though not all of american society basically experiences an, an improvement in lifestyle in their living conditions um, and it becomes quite an affluent society that basically means that people in general are relatively well off they tend to be able to afford all their bills they tend to have a bit of disposable income that sort of thing okay and and like with the 1920s what that means is that there can be an explosion of kind of consumerism and popular culture and things like that okay um this is also fueled by by a change in media which we'll get onto in a little bit um and again like with the 1920s and prosperity there prosperity in 1945 and onwards is is a biased prosperity there are there's certain groups of people who do much much better than others and there are certain groups of people particularly african-americans who do not have access to the same level of improvement um and sort of an improved lifestyle that everybody else has okay um the reality is what you end up with in the 1940s and 50s is a growth of kind of middle class white america people who generally have a fairly comfortable lifestyle they um are involved in all sorts of different industries but what you see is in the 1950s because of that kind of wartime economy the american manufacturing economy is is working really strongly and actually they kind of are producing nearly half of all of the world's goods through the 1950s okay um and their gross national product the amount of money that they're making essentially doubles okay um and it is basically they're able to kind of get a jump start in terms of their economy on their industrial competitors. What that means is they're also starting to be able to produce more consumer goods. And we see this sort of this advertising ideal and this sort of social ideal that we would associate with the American dream. Now, I know a couple of you talked about that in earlier lessons, but essentially this is a 1940s, 50s onwards thing. OK, the American dream is basically that this this idea of having a steady income living in the suburbs so those bits that sort of surround cities a bit of a white picket fence all of that stuff sorry that's my cat um and having modern conveniences like refrigerators and washing machines and televisions okay and you can kind of see that in the advertising there is this assumption that people are going to be able to afford more than just what they need they're going to start buying luxury goods um and essentially that 
starts that cycle of prosperity that you're really, really familiar with, that business model of increased demand, increased supply, increased employment, increased wages, and it goes around again and again and again and again. Okay. Um, so during the 1950s, you see an advertising campaign that is focused on this idea of, you know, white middle class family mm-hmm. living in the suburbs, husband, wife, two kids, new car, new fridge, all of that sort of stuff. And we get this idea of like keeping up with the Joneses. You have to try and keep up with next door. They get a new washing machine. You're going to want to get one too, etc. Okay. Um, and in the 1960s, the standard of living uh, of the average American was about three times that of the average British person. So the American family was about three times more kind of affluent in general. Um, and they have a culture and it is something that sort of spreads from America at this point that spending is better than saving um, and you can shop for things and you should shop for things um, and it becomes almost like a recreational activity it's possibly why kind of the mall and the, the idea of kind of big shopping centers and stuff become become sort of central okay there is also a shift in media that helps to push this. So we have advertising in magazines. We saw that in the 1920s. You have advertising on radio, absolutely. 1950s, we see the invention of the TV. So you start to see television adverts as well. And we are some of the most susceptible to these sorts of things. But essentially, we know that adverts have a really um, powerful impact and effect on people. And actually... Um, there is a whole science that goes behind it that convinces people they want that product or they should buy that. Okay. Now we know in the 1920s, a lot of this was also funded by higher purchase and that is no different after the 1950s mm-hmm. and 60s. Higher purchase becomes a thing. Um, so people start to use credit, but that is, is, is kind of okay within the setting of, of the economy at large at that point um it's also this idea where we start to see something which annoys me no end is something called designed obsolescence what it basically means is people began to expect that things would break or that goods were only supposed to last a couple of years and then they should be replaced with a newer model it's the idea that we should replace everything Okay, so parts for old models start to kind of become more difficult to come by. And this tradition of kind of repairing and making do and mending starts to be replaced with this idea of replacing, renewing. Um, it's, the, it's the reason why in the modern day, for example, we upgrade our mobile phones every couple of years. It's that thing. These, these, these items are designed to break and you, you're supposed to go and get new ones. Been making it difficult for people to repair their existing stuff making the new stuff really really appealing on tv it creates this temptation that you should go and buy the latest model the latest thing and and it sort of becomes like a social statement as well i've got the best of this i've got the best of that okay um and equally what you start to see in this period is in the 1920s the wealth doesn't really spread downwards it doesn't spread far into rural communities it doesn't spread downwards um, particularly into old industries and things like that. But actually in the 50s, more people on the social scale felt wealthier and more affluent, okay? There were still lots and lots of people who felt excluded, but actually increasing numbers of people became um, kind of caught up in the, the affluence of the period, okay? So the takeaway from that, the 1950s, after World War II, America are able to build on the fact that their industry was able to keep going in the war 
the cycle of prosperity kind of restarts okay people are more affluent in general so families have more money to spend they have more disposable income can take part in more pastimes and we see the growth of consumerism okay television advertising radio advertising magazine advertising this idea of the american dream having the newest having the best being the guy kind of setting the standard on the street that's what you want it to be okay coupled with that because of this disposable income you have a growth in popular culture or a change in popular culture again okay popular culture now becomes dominated by television radio and cinema essentially it becomes that sort of modern popular culture that we have now okay and most of the stuff that was made for, for all of those mediums was about um, confidence and optimism particularly of white America it kind of overlooks or glosses over that those people who are missing out or unable to um, to gain uh, in the same way okay um, this is the age of television television ownership develops phenomenally okay in fact mm -hmm. sorry it's like Piccadilly Circus here. I've just had to answer the door anyway um, so television ownership sorry develops rapidly okay in fact, um, I would say up until mobile phones, possibly no other household technology has spread so rapidly. Uh, 1948, shortly after its kind of proper inception, 0.4% of households own a telly. 1954, six years later, it's gone from 0.4% in 1948, 1954, 55.7%, half of all households have a TV in them. Okay. That still doesn't sound like much, I guess, but four years later, 1958, 83.2% of households have a television. Okay. Now, yeah, we're probably somewhere near 100% saturation. Well, I mean, lots of us might have them in more than one room, but for a 10 year period to go from 0.4%, less than 1% of households to 83.2% of households owning a television, that's like a phenomenal growth. Okay television starts to replace reading listening to the radio or even going to the cinema as a form of entertainment okay and essentially it is dominated by this idea of commercial sponsors okay they are trying to get people to spend money in the consumer society so programs generally had a sponsor okay a product that would appear kind of every ad break and try and get you to, to buy that particular thing, okay? Most programs are game shows. There are sitcoms and soap operas. Soap operas are essentially called that because they were initially sponsored by like washing soap, soap for, for laundry, okay? Um, and the emphasis was very much on lighthearted programming. They didn't put much emphasis on serious programming. The only thing was TV news, okay? Um, so TV news in America develops sort of alongside this and actually alongside this idea of sponsorship and, and things as well. So um, it, it kind of creates a very interesting news news dynamic. We can talk about that another time. OK, um, there is also lots of kind of children's TV. OK, because you kind of see in the in the 1940s and 50s, this, this boom, the baby boom, essentially this boomer generation of, of people who are having lots and lots of children. Okay, um, so television becomes this really, really powerful tool 
it's what kind of controls or guides the aspirations of Americans. Um, family purchases are determined by what they've seen advertised on the TV and also what their neighbours purchase. Okay, so that comes back to that kind of American dream, keeping up with the Jones's idea. Your family should look a certain way, they should buy certain things. Okay, and also it develops a national culture. Lots of Americans sitting down to watch the same sorts of programmes, the same things, they're sort of developing this, this shared culture. Okay. Alongside that, you also have this, this age of the teenager. Okay. Um, teenagers in the 40s and 50s had more leisure time and more spending money than youth in any previous generation. Okay. It's the first time teenagers have sort of economic power and they have the, the disposable time as well, the leisure time to spend. Okay. So they start to assume their own styles and culture. This is the first time in the 1940s, the first time the term teenager is even used to describe that group. Okay. And essentially the term starts to become associated with kind of rebellion as youth uh, and young people were seen to act against their parents and social rules. They sort of were seen as setting their own standards. Um, the kind of icon of this, or the, the icons of this, are people who were in movies like Marlon Brando and James Dean, and they were seen as sort of rebellious and unsuitable role models. Um, you can kind of see it in kind of um, like uh, Grease, the musical, you know, the 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 T-Birds the with their... Um, leather jackets and their hair and stuff they're supposed to be that kind of subversive youth kind of element um yeah so you know you start to see this this growth of, of a new group of people and that teenage kind of discontent almost is what helps to grow rock and roll music now rock and roll music comes out of essentially kind of it's got roots in jazz and rhythm and blues and it's got roots in african-american music that that we know about okay um, but you start to see it kind of spread into a more wide stream, uh, more mainstream sort of popularity. Um, the biggest icon of that really in the 50s is Elvis Presley. Um, and he was shocking to parents in the way he danced and stuff like that. But he had 170 hit singles. OK, he sold 80 uh, top selling albums. So you can kind of see the growth of this. And it was this idea of sort of rejecting what their parents wanted, that this this more traditional, conservative way of life uh, and kind of forming their own sort of ideas. And it, it feeds into what we're going to look at next, which is kind of the growth of the of the 1960s, students having more of a say and, and this civil unrest of the period as well. Um, and, and you see teenagers kind of emerge as, as a separate group. So essentially, um, life in, in America after the war was, was diversifying. It was interesting. Um, and there was this growth of consumerism. The world of America in the 1950s and 60s starts to become much more familiar with the world we have today. The, the values are, are starting to shift towards values we have, um, certainly in terms of consumerism, this idea that we can buy stuff. Um, you know, so you'd actually probably find that a, quite a familiar period. Um, I hope this has been helpful. Thanks.